Keesaw really has been a great bridge to our community, and it's really a way where we can fulfill our BLESS initiative. And so if you're interested in this, they currently have, we have a need for two teachers and four assistant teachers, and also some administration uh, help is needed. And so this is a ministry where not only are we providing a need, but the gospel is shared. I don't want you to miss that. So if this is something you might be interested in, there's also a table in the courtyard today. Really would encourage you to check it out. So my name is Tony Anderson. It's great to be with you today as we study, uh, study as we're in the 4th of July weekend. Really is, a, I think, appropriate that we are gathered together to worship, to really exercise the freedom that the Lord has given us in this country. And so I'm really glad you're here. Uh, since the 4th of July is Tuesday, how many of you have 4th of July plans? How many of you are still, maybe we're thinking about them? Okay. How many of you had plans changed already because of the 4th of July? Someone didn't show up, can't pull it off. Yeah, so... Plans change frequently, and a personal story, about in February, about 12 of our biblical counselors from the Hope Center, we went to a biblical counseling conference in Lafayette, Indiana in February. Now, you're already thinking, how wise could these people be? They went to Indiana in February, but it's really a good conference. But it's a week long, and so when we're making plans to come back, the conference ends on Friday morning about 10.30 or 11. So we were able to make plans. It was really great that we could actually drive from Lafayette to Indianapolis, fly through Atlanta, make a connection, and be home at 8.30 on Friday night. Now, I don't know about you, but my recent travels, if I want to get anywhere at a decent price, I'm getting up at 3.30 or 4 in the morning to fly out at dark 30. I'm usually on the last flight in. So to be able to be home at 8.30 was great. So we leave Friday morning from Lafayette. We're driving. We get to Indianapolis Airport. And as we're arriving, all of a sudden, our phones are starting to light up. Flight delay, flight delay. So we're there in the airport. And after enough of these, we realize, you know what? We are not going to make our flight connection to Atlanta. So as the, quote, leader of the trip, I go to the ticket counter and find out what's happening. I go, well, you're flying on a day where someone decided to fly off the end of the runway in Houston, which now this hobby airport is the uh, hub for this particular airline. And so FAA did a ground stop, and so all our flights are delayed. I said, well, how are you going to get us to Jacksonville tonight? And they go, we can't get you to Jacksonville tonight. I said, so when can you get us there? Well, we can get two of you there tomorrow, Saturday, and the other 10 will have to be Monday. My first guess was two. <laughs> I said, no, no. And I said, well, can you get us hotels? And I go, well, no, it wasn't our fault. It was the FAA. Oh, fine. So... Brett Johns, who's on the trip, what we, we'll go to Atlanta, we'll at least catch that flight, and we'll rent a couple of vehicles, and we'll drive home. So we rented our cars, and then we just sat and sat, and it got longer and longer. And as we're sitting at the gate, my phone rings, unknown number. I don't want that. A few minutes later, Brett goes, did you answer your phone? I go, no. He goes, no cars in Atlanta. I go, what do you mean? He said, we have a reservation. Yeah, you don't have cars. What I've learned, by the way, is if you have a car reservation, they don't make you turn it in. If you want to extend it, you extend it. And then anyone with reservations, no cars. But we said, what can we do? So Brett got on the phone, got us another car rental from another agency, finally flew into uh, Atlanta, landed about 1145. 
And if you've been to the Atlanta airport, you go up out of these terminals. The rental car is in another building that you take a train to. We come down the stairs to this particular car rental agency. And I'm not, I'm not really exaggerating. There are about as many people for that ticket counter as are in this room right now. It's like, what is going on? I'm saying, there's got to be a line for reservations. And you start hearing mumbling. They don't have cars. They don't have cars. I go, well, we got a reservation. One lady said, yes, so do we. No cars. So we said, all right, we need to find a place to stay. So Brett and I, there are like three hotels on the Atlanta airport property. We take another train to find it. And they said, we don't have any rooms. There are no rooms on any of these hotels. So we drive, we get back in the train, find our group. And so it's like 12.15, no hotel, no way to get home. What do we do? And that's when as a good leader, I decide I'm gonna leverage my resources. So what I have present with me is the pregnant wife of our college pastor. I said, Hannah, do you think Ryan would get one of the vans and come get us? She said, I don't know, he might. You want to call him? I go, oh, no, I'm not calling him. You call him. <laughs> but to Ryan's credit, he came, he found the 15-passenger van and came, set out a couple of energy drinks later, started driving. And in the meantime, we sleep in the, in the main terminal, because remember, we're not at any of the gates anymore. They have those seats. We're, we're grabbing floor space, and there are these big vacuum cleaners going, and it's crazy. Um, so we sleep there. Ryan shows up about a little after 7 a.m. after driving all night. We pack into the 15-passenger van. Now, you've got to remember, there's now 13 of us, and 12 of us had luggage for a week, and so it's like Tetris getting everyone in the van. So we put Brett and Shirley in the back because by this time, Brett's also developed a fever. You get in the back. And then we put people in a row of seats, luggage. People, luggage. So we had to stop for the bathroom twice. And each time, it's like putting it in, putting it back together again. I volunteered to drive the whole way because I had the most room. So real, <laughs> real selfless of me. But the point is, you make plans. And they seem like good plans, and they don't always turn out the way you anticipate. So today we're going to see that James has some instructions for us about what to know and what to do when we make plans. So if you have a copy of your scriptures, let's open to James 4. We're going to pick up in verse 13. If you don't have a copy of the scriptures, they'll uh, be up here. So we want to find out today the truth we need to know when we are making plans. James says, Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we'll go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Therefore, to the one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. So let's remember who James is talking to here. He's, he's writing to Christians, Jewish Christians, who have had to flee Jerusalem because of persecution. So they're already dispersed. They're already in some other city and he's writing to a group who seems to be saying, well, we're going to go yet to another city, make money, make profit, maybe recoup some of their losses. And he gives some wisdom on making plans, but he also admonishes them pretty harshly 
at the end. But when you look at these plans, it's like, well, this doesn't seem inappropriate. I mean, it's basically what all businesses do. They have a business plan, right? This is what we're going to do. This is how we make money. We don't go into business to lose money. And families, we frequently make plans. We make plans to transfer, to take jobs. And so what is it that James is speaking to in this particular situation? Well, so what we want to do is we want to look at what we need to know, and then at the end, we're going to figure out what do we do with what we know. So the first thing we need to know is we don't know the future. We do not know the future. It says right there, yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. Forget about what will life be like a year from now. We don't know tomorrow. And James says, ignorance of the future is just a matter of fact. And so it's foolishness on our part to count on earthly things, earthly circumstances. And you can sort of see in his opening language, he sort of says it sarcastically, come now, you who say this. NIV says, now listen, you who plan and do such and such a thing. You don't know the future. We are constantly surprised by the events around us. Just pause for a moment. Think of where you are in life right now. How different is it than what you expected at some point? When you think about, hmm, I wouldn't have planned to be married to this person or not married to this person, living in this town, this job, this church. All the things, our plans frequently change. Yet we continue to make plans counting on certain things, right? We make plans. I'm assuming when I make travel arrangements, the rental car will be there, the airline will be there, everything will be there. I make plans thinking I'll be of good health that day, able to travel. I mean, really, when you think about, particularly since COVID, when you make a reservation, do you want the non-refundable reservation or the refundable one? It's like, is there anything that could happen that could prevent us from taking this trip? Well, absolutely. Yet we make plans counting on it. And sometimes we make plans counting on other people to be part of those plans. And they, for whatever reason, cannot follow through. Charles Spurgeon says this, how is it that instead of living in the eternal future where we might deal with certainties, we continue to live in the more immediate future where there can be nothing but uncertainties? When we make plans, we know in eternity we will be with Jesus forever we do know there will be no more pain, no more tears. We do know that we, there will be rewards for good works done in faith where we have sought to love God and love others out of a pure heart. We can count on that. And so I think that is helpful when we make plans. The fact is we don't know the future. And I think for the most part, that's to our benefit, right? Can you imagine if you really did know the future? If you know you were going to die exactly 10 years from today, that sense of dread for 10 years? Or what if you thought, you know what, in 20 years, something really good is going to happen? Are you discontent for those 20 years until it it gets there? I mean, think about it. We know what we have in heaven, yet we grow discontent here. So I think it's to our benefit not to know the future. And there's another piece of, I think there's another truth here. James is admonishing people who are acting like they do know the future, but it's also helpful to people who can't make plans, can't make decisions because they're afraid they 
don't know the future. I don't, I want to know God's will for my life. And so they suffer from what we call paralysis by analysis. More, I just need more data. Is it God's will that I take the job in Denver or Dallas? Do I marry Susie or Julie? The, what James is saying, you don't know the future. So stop hesitating, waiting on something God has not promised you. He's given you his word for absolutes and wisdom. Make decisions. You don't know the future. So this passage is not about not making plans. It's about how to make plans. And certainty of the future is not something we have. Second thing is life is short. Life is short. It says right here, Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. So, got this from Doug. Maybe this is what he used for that cigar. I don't know, from last week. You know, I thought about wearing shorts today after last week's lessons because I knew you wouldn't judge me for shorts. You may judge the legs, but not the shorts. So we're a vapor. So... That's our life. Whether you live 10 years or 100 years, compared to eternity, our life is a vapor. For some, this should be encouraging. Like, life is hard. This life is not endless. For others, they try to make everything about this life. Like, I'm going to try to get everything into this life and make it the best here. But this is not our forever home. Right? Do you ever go to check into a hotel on a trip and rearrange the furniture? Someone on Thursday said yes, and I said, that's weird. But, <laughs> but it, is, it is Thursday night, so anyway. Uh, just kidding if you're a regular Thursday nighter. So. But no, because you're not staying there. You, know, you don't try to make it the way you want it because this is not our home. For believers, no matter if, you're, if you consider your life good or bad, this is the worst it's ever going to be compared to eternity. And for unbelievers, no matter what their life is like, it's the best it's ever going to be unless they come to saving knowledge of Christ. So as we make plans, let's think about it. Our life is short. It is just a vapor. And related to that, what we see from the passages, God has determined how long we live. God has determined how long we live. It says right here, instead you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. Now I have to, when I read this, James is one of my favorite books. I've read this passage many times. And in my mind, sometimes when I read it, I go, if the Lord wills, we will live. And I'm thinking we will live in this city or that city. But that's not what this says. It says, if the Lord wills, we will live or die. He determines that. In the Psalms, it says, your eyes have seen my unformed substance and in your book were all written the days that were ordained for me when as yet there was not one of them. Before we were born, God has determined how long each one of us is gonna live. So think of it this way. God is not going to decide how long you live. God is not in the process of deciding how long you're gonna live. He has decided how long you will live. We all have an expiration date on our back. Can't see it, 
but it's already been determined. And so what do, should we do with that? It means we should not presume upon the future. Jesus gave this warning when he told this parable in Luke. And then he, Jesus, said to them, beware and be on your guard against every form of greed, for not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. And he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man was very productive. And he began reasoning to himself saying, what shall I do since I have no place to store my crops? Then he said, this is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and I'll build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your soul is required of you. And now who will own what you have prepared? So is the man who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. So again, this thinking that, you know what? I'm going to make money, and then I'm going to have this nest egg. I'm going to enjoy my retirement. And there's this focus on self. That is uh, presumptuous of us. God alone knows how long we're going to live. But the good news is, what did we sing? If you're not dead, he's not done with you as believers. He has plans for us. So God has determined how long we'll live. Did not plan that. Uh, okay, God has determined our future circumstances. Wow, that's cool. Uh, including that, including the beep sound. All right, he's to plan our future circumstances. Let's see how this works. There we go. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. God determines our future circumstances. We, is, we make plans and we set them in motion, but God is going to determine the outcome. We see in Isaiah, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things which have not been done, saying my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. When did God declare the end? According to this passage, you can speak, it's okay. From the beginning, it's not, he's not in the process. He's declared the end from the beginning. God in his providence, which is intentional sovereignty, God is all powerful and his providence is how he uses that to bring about his purposes. So he's working. Everything we do is either decreed or allowed by God in his providence. And another way he works is in the heart of man. The king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it whichever he wishes. So the spirit works in man to direct our steps. And we're not always aware, is that me or is that the Lord leading? But the Lord is always going to bring about his purposes. One of the, what helped me understand this is the book, Trusting God by Jerry Bridges. And he gives sort of this example. Right in the front row is uh, Kelly Young, our great graphic designer. And if we were having a conversation about signage or some graphic here on, camp on campus, and she was in favor of option A and I was in favor of option B, and we were having that conversation, and something she said convinced me, I go, you're right, let's go with option A. I'm very aware that it was Kelly's wisdom and creativity that impacted me to make a change. 
But sometimes with us, we make changes or decisions and the spirit works differently within us. Kelly was an external data point. Many times the spirit brings things to mind. Have you ever changed your mind on something? You know, I was thinking this, but now I think this might be the better option. I think I'm going to take this turn to, nope, this time I'm going to go this way. The Lord is always working in us to bring about his purposes. So he will work in our circumstances. He changes our plans. Are you grateful every time God changes your plans? Does it, de- does it depend on how he changes your plans? Yeah, that's a lot, but I'm like that. So when God changes our plans, we ought to ask, what is it we're really thinking? Not the church. What are we really thinking? A lot of times, maybe from Romans, we're thinking this. And we hope that God causes most things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Right? That's sometimes, well, I hope you're going to work this for good. I hope this is something that you thought about. Okay, I just have to say, after filling in for Doug for 17 years, I finally had to pull a Doug. This is not what the passage says. All right? This is what the passage says. And we know. We're not hoping. We're not thinking. We're not, you know, that hopeful hope. So we know God causes all things, including how he changed your plans to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. When we make plans that he changes them, because he loves us, he is working in every one of those changed plans for good. And he defines good as making you and I more like Christ. How many of you would say, I want to be more like Christ? Okay. How many of you would say, I want to be more like Christ if it means missing my flight? You know, I tell you, it's very, I was blessed that I was with a group of biblical counselors when all that was going on because there was some great accountability there. (laughs) You know, I think a lot of times in my heart, it's like, okay, I can get home tonight or become more like Jesus. Can I start being more like Jesus tomorrow and get home tonight? (laughs) But it shows I want something else. It reveals my heart. So how about when that, you lose that job? That's a change of plans. Can you be grateful because he's working to make you more like Jesus? Or how about when that diagnosis comes in that you weren't expecting? It's an opportunity to be more like Jesus. See, God knows your heart and my heart better than we do. And he says, I want to sanctify you. I want to make you more like Jesus. I know what to put into your life. I know what to pull out of your life to conform you to that image where your heart needs to be chiseled, softened, where idols have to be, where you're clinging to idols that have to be revealed. So when we make plans and they change, we can know God is working it for good, even when it's hard. So I think we should train ourselves to have that thought. Okay, God, this is not what I plan. How are you working it to make me more like your son? Just run through the fruit of the spirit. Is this an opportunity to grow in one of the, one of the fruit of the spirit? Or how about love as it's defined in 1 Corinthians 13? Patient, not boastful, believes all things, trusts all things. We, we need to train ourselves. Then James really gets a little firm here. He says that planning that ignores the above is prideful and evil. Prideful and evil. 
says, but as it is, you boast in your arrogance, all such boasting is evil. Those are strong words for people making plans that we would think are not bad on their face. So what's he talking about? He's talking about that heart of pride. And actually, if you look at James chapter four, admonishing against pride is all throughout the chapter, right? When we fight over our lustful desires, when we, in our pride, we judge others. Here, when we arrogantly think that we are our own sovereign. I can make plans, I can bring it about, I control all things, I can do all things. And that's really what James is talking about here. When he's writing to these people, there appears to be no thought of God. There seems to be a presumption that they can pull it all off. You think about it. They made no contingency plan and they said, we're gonna presume the when. We'll go today or tomorrow. I'll decide. We'll go where, where? We'll go to that city. For how long? It'll probably take a year. I can do it in a year. We will do what? We'll run a business. I can bring everything about, resources, every business, and I'm gonna presume the outcome. It will make a profit. That, can, that reveals that heart of pride. And when anytime I'm confronted with my pride, it, the verse that really helps me get back on track is this Proverbs 26, 12. It says, do you see a man wise in his own eyes? There's more hope for a fool than for him. So the wise man who says, I don't need your input. I didn't ask for it. I know what I'm doing. I can bring this about. He's closed off to wisdom. The fool may be ignorant, but at least he appears to be open to wisdom from others. So when I am proud, I'm worse than a fool. And this word that we translate fool in Proverbs is the same word translated stupid in Psalms. So this is what I tell myself when I, when I catch myself being prideful or when someone lovingly admonishes me for being prideful, I'm worse than stupid. And I don't think any one of us say, great to be worse than stupid today. So when we're prideful, that's what's happening. When we make plans pridefully, that really can have quite an effect. And another personal story in my life, I hope maybe you can relate to. Well, actually, I hope you don't have any personal experience with this. So many of you know that before I came on staff 10 years ago, I practiced law as an attorney here in town. And I'd gone to the University of Georgia for law school and out of law school, took a job here with a good firm. And I'd been in Jacksonville for about four years, but a lot of my, most of my friends, classmates from Georgia, they were practicing in Atlanta with bigger firms, making more money. And so I thought, oh, Atlanta's more sophisticated, yada, 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 whatever. Anyway, a, uh, one of the 50 largest firms that was headquartered in LA opened an Atlanta office and they brought in two hotshot real estate partners and they were looking for a senior real estate associate. So this headhunter called me and said, would you be interested in coming to, this, to Atlanta and work for this firm? And I'm thinking, yeah, I can go to Atlanta, make more money. At the time, my mother lived there, my wife's mother lived there, two of her sisters lived there. Seemed to make sense, right? And as I was prepared, and I've talked about this before, but even as I was preparing today, I realized I don't remember a lot of prayer going into that decision. See, the reality was, though, my, we were in a, connected to a good church. My wife had godly women as friends because we had a two-year-old, and that's a great support to have godly women in your life. 
I was at a firm that had a high percentage of Christian lawyers. Now that's not an oxymoron. There are Christian lawyers and there were a high percentage there. But I went because, you know, prestige, family, money seemed to be all lining up. So I lived with my mom for five weeks. Then we rented an apartment for two, two months. And then we said, well, let's go ahead and buy a house. Okay, we're gonna be here. The house in Jacksonville is gonna sell, right? Bought two, had a house, late 20s. It's not like this was, it's like, okay, we gotta sell the house. We're gonna buy a house. So after, it'd been there five and a half months when the two partners who had come said, we're leaving the firm. They got crossways. They didn't like their percentage of the profits or whatever. And they go, we're going to a place we can probably get you a job there, but it's not gonna be in real estate. Hmm, interesting. Thanks to the Lord, a friend from my firm here in Jacksonville just called me and said, hey, just checking up. By the way, we haven't replaced you yet. <laughs> you wouldn't want to come back, would you? Yes. <laughs> so we were able to sell the Atlanta house for what we paid for it, but with closing costs and commissions, wiped out all our savings. We had a house here to move back into because had that one sold, we, we wouldn't have been able to buy a house because we had zilch in the savings account. It's just, it's just a reminder here. I had a plan on paper. It would, everyone would agree with it. But I was presuming that I could control the outcome, and I don't remember at all making that uh, an item of prayer. And so um, I, can, I can relate to this. How, there are other ways, too, that we can uh, plan pridefully, and that's when we know what the Bible says, and we said, I'm not going to do it or I'm not going to do it now, all right? So people say, I know what the scriptures say. I don't have grounds for divorce, but I'm going to plan to divorce anyway because I know I'll be happier. Or I know I should do this, but I'm going to do something else. I have time to do that later, all right? Delayed obedience is still disobedience. We have to, to remember that. I think that's what may be happening in James uh, 4 here because I think, and I could be wrong, but if you study the passage, you look at 4 and then the beginning of 5, I think James is admonishing the rich for making plans to make more profit when there are other things they should have been doing with their money, like paying their workers, which we'll see next week when Doug covers chapter 5. So I think that's what's happening here. They, and we're going to see it in a minute, they knew something they should be doing and they weren't doing it. And that was boastful. That's arrogant. And the word that we use for that evil, wicked, is how Satan is described in the scriptures. Satan said, I'm going to set myself up. I'm going to make myself sovereign. And he's described as wicked and evil. And that's how we're described when we take God out of the equation and we ignore his word when we're making plans. That leads to the final point of what we need to know. And James 4, 17 says, therefore, to the one who knows the right thing to do and doesn't do it, to him it is sin. Seems sort of obvious, uh, and maybe you're familiar with it, but isn't it true that it's still sin if you do it and you didn't know it was sin? If you stole something, it's sin, even if you didn't know stealing was a sin. It's, if you lie, it's still a sin. So I think what, again, what James is Dealing, at, dealing with here is it is sin to know the right thing to do and not do that. 
And I worded it that way. I picture someone, you're making plans, you have all these options, and you know this is the one you should do. Obedience requires this one. Not a wisdom situation. Obedience requires this. James is saying, you got all these options and this is the right thing to do? Do that one. Do that one. So when we're making our plans and we know obedience requires me to do this, do that. And we're, we're going to unpack that in a minute. So, those are the things we need to know if we make plans. If we know those things, we want to be wise with them. And we're, we're not wise unless we apply our knowledge. So, what should this result in? Now that we know these things, our hearts should change. We should be humble. We should be humble. You know, the statement, if the Lord wills, sounds a little cliche, right? If the Lord wills, it's sort of like in Je- how we close prayer. In Jesus' name, if the Lord wills. But the attitude should be on our heart, even if we don't say those words. There should be this recognition. It's only if the Lord wills will these plans come about. So that means we should prayerfully present our plans to the Lord in prayer. Lord, I'm making these plans. Please bring to mind Scripture, wisdom that I need to know. I think it will humble us. Other people can speak into our lives when we seek wisdom in making plans. Husbands, I think this is crucial. We have to recognize as the leader of our families, we want to be wise. We want to be humble. And I think being willing to let other people speak into our lives makes it a lot easier for our wives to be supportive and to submit to our decisions if they know you're humble enough to lay your cards on the table and get wise counsel from someone else when you make plans. So if there is a big decision, a life-altering one, and you guys aren't in unity, be humble enough to say, let's get wisdom on this. You're still accountable for the decision. It's still going to be yours, but get that wise counsel to see what others would be, how they would speak into your lives. Communicate with your children as well that you don't control the future. Don't teach them that you can't make promises where you don't have control, right? Oh, I promise we're going to go to the beach. You don't know that. You can say, that's our plan. Lord wills, we we will go. But you can make plans, but help them understand early on that the Lord controls it. Drives me crazy when you watch TV shows or movies where promise you'll come back to me. I promise you don't know that, you know? Help them understand that God is in control. And when we humble ourselves, he says in verse six, he gives a greater grace. And you know what? You know how you'll know you're growing in humility? It's how you respond when your plans change. If you sense yourself still frustrated, it's like there's still work for humility. And you might say, oh, I'm not upset at God. I'm just upset at my circumstances. Well, we know now, well, God's in control of them, so I'm still sinfully angry at God for changing my plans. You'll know you're growing in humility when your response to change plans uh, change as well. Next thing is we should trust God with the future. We are creatures. We are created. He is our creator, so he knows best. We ought to believe that by faith. So God is perfect, right? We would agree with that God is perfect, but because God is perfect, he is perfect in every one of his attributes. He is perfectly sovereign. Absolutely nothing is outside of his control. 
He is perfectly wise. There's not a piece of information that he doesn't have or needs to know in order to guide and direct our path. It's not up there going, oh, wish, didn't know that was coming. No, and he's perfectly good. He's perfectly loving. He's always working for what is in your best eternal interest, your soul. And we can trust that because he has proven himself faithful. And don't think that because either your plans came about and you have difficulty or he changed your plans and you're having difficulty that it means it's not the Lord's will because God brings trials to grow us in dependency upon him. So if our hearts have changed because we are humble, we trust God, then our plans need to change and we should live and plan with eternity in mind. Think about it. If you know your life is short, you know the only certainty is eternal ones and you know God is in control, then that ought to impact our priorities. We should live and commit plans, commit our plans, our ministries, and our actions to things that will bear eternal fruit, right? Actions that will love God and love others. 1 Corinthians 10, 31 says, whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. Find me an exception in this verse, all right? All right, can I do this not to the glory of God? No, we have to do all to the glory of God, which means when I'm making plans, is, is, can I do this in a way that leads to the praise of God, can I do it in such a way that gives the right opinion of God to others? God should be glorified in it. So evaluate your priorities. Where, is your, where are you investing your treasure? And for me, things I treasure are my time, it's limited, my effort, and as you get older, you really value your effort because we can get tired, and our money. And so where's your time, your effort, and your money going? Is it in eternal things that glorify God? Or is it on things, as Doug says, will get rust, rot, or get ripped off? And I can anticipate a question. There is nothing wrong with vacations and hobbies. Again, if you can do them to the glory of God, right? I mean, if you want to take the family to the beach and say, we want to praise God because he's given us the resources to do it, and we can marvel at his creation, that is great, same with me. I love the mountains. I love snow. So when I can go and say, but I want to make sure it's not like, look, I have been able to earn this and look what I've been able to do. It's like, no, Lord, you created this and you created the ability for me to be here. We can do that. And I think of, I look at hobbies and vacations this way. The best example I could come up with, anybody here have Hot Wheels when they were growing up? The orange cars, you know? I love it. I've got grandchildren now, so I'm really looking forward to getting into the Hot Wheels with them. But Hot Wheels are these, they were just, um, you know, car, race cars on track, and it's all gravity driven. And you'd go down and you could set up tracks all over your house, under the couches and whatever. But because of gravity, the cars would eventually stop. So Hot Wheels created this booster where it hits the booster and then gives it additional uh, push to keep going through the course. That's what our vacation should be like. Lord, thank you for this booster, this week or whatever to help me continue. But it shouldn't be something like where the vacations or the, the creature comforts are all we live for. So let's um, work on that. And then also 
we should live with, we should first plan to do what we know is right. What we know is right. And if you look at the passage, this is the, this is the therefore uh, paragraph, right? He tells us all these things. He says, therefore, if you know what you should do and you haven't done it, it is sin. He is telling us many times that when we know what we should do, that sin of omission will result in a sin of commission. Not always, but if we know there's something we should do and we choose not to do it, many times it's because it's, we're going to choose something that we shouldn't do. So we want to make sure we're doing what's right. So that means when you're making plans, first start with the scripture. Ask yourself today, is there, am I living in disobedience to the scripture? As I make, oh, what do I do tomorrow, next week? What we do, do know is if there's ongoing sin, repent of that. That's what you should do. Delayed obedience is disobedience. And I think in the context of life as a vapor in short, if you're, is there a relationship that you're not, that's not reconciled? Right now, can you identify someone where you need to go and ask forgiveness and you're dragging your feet? Or are you withholding forgiveness from someone? I'll get around to it. I'll do. Life's a vapor. One of you may not be here tomorrow. And the scripture is clear that we are to seek and grant forgiveness. It's not a feeling. So ask yourself, do I need to be reconciled? Don't neglect your common duties of life. If you're a student, you're at home, one of the common duties is to honor and obey your parents. You may be making plans. I'm going to go to this college, maybe go into ministry, go to Bible college. Or I'm going to get this job where I will be under the authority of a boss. Start now. Obey your parents. Parents, are you raising your children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord? Or are you too busy? They get that at Christian school or they get that when they go to CFC. We are called as parents to be the ones who train them in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So don't, again, priorities, do what you know is right. Do your work heartily to the Lord. Do you go to work every day recognizing your CEO is Jesus Christ? He is. Now, it's okay. You might say, I don't really like my job, but you can still do your work heartily to him, for him, and you can even look for a different job. But the CEO never changes. So it's like, okay, tomorrow I'm going to plan to do my work as if with the reality that Jesus is my CEO. As you make plans and you have parents, are you taking into account, I have a biblical responsibility to care for my aging parents? Am I making plans so that, again, to the best of my ability, I'll be able to provide for them? And for those of us who may be getting into the aging parent category, are we trying to be reasonable so that we're not an undue burden on our kids? Or is it like, well, I'm going to squander, spend everything I have, his responsibility to take care of me after that. We're trying to minimize that burden on them as well. And then, First Peter tells us, as each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Every one of us here has been given a spiritual gift to be used by God to one, display his grace, glorify him, and to build up the body, to make disciples. And I don't believe as you read scripture, there's ever a time where we can say, well, it's not my season of life to use my spiritual gift. I think we're called to always be using our gifts. It may look different from time to time. It may not be something where you can weekly serve on campus, but there should be times where it's like, 
there should be a way either from home, remotely, or a way that you can use your spiritual gifts. So the band's going to come out, and as we conclude, I, I, the takeaway from this is not that you don't make plans, okay? You would not have liked it if I came up here and said, well, I didn't have a plan to, to say anything, so I'm just going to wing it. You would not have liked that. But let's rest in knowing that even though our life is a vapor and that God is, but that God is in control, and let's make our planning consistent with what we know from Scripture. You know, the Scripture says when we pray that we want His will to be done here on earth as it is in heaven. So I'm going I'm to close this in a prayer, and then the band's going to lead us. As we pray, would you search your heart and say, where have I been presumptuous? Where is God not in my planning? Father, you, you've created us in a way to make plans, and so you want us to make plans. And in your grace and mercy, you've given us your scripture, which gives clear do's and don'ts, but also a lot of principles, biblical wisdom that we can use. But Lord, as we make these plans, let us be mindful of you. Let us want the things you want. Let us seek to make your kingdom here on earth a priority. Lord, we want to be faithful. We want to be humble. And we know, Lord, that we can trust you because you are trustworthy. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I invite you to stand. Your will be done, my God and Father, as in heaven, so on earth. My heart is drawn to self-exalting. Help me seek your kingdom first. As Jesus walked, so I shall walk, held by your same unchanging love. Be still, my soul, oh, lift your voice and pray, Father, not my will, but yours be done. As we go forth, our God and Father, lead us daily in the fire that all the world might see your glory and your name be lifted high. And in this name we overcome, for you shall see us safely home. Now as your church we
grateful for you guys, grateful for your participation, grateful for the message from Tony. Thank you, Tony, for that. Hey, as we go in the next few days, we'll only be people who, although we may have some plans, let's hold loosely to those, understanding that God's in charge and he's doing something in the midst of all the change. So we can approach that humbly. Uh, really grateful for that. That's going to be good for me over these next couple of days. If we can pray for you in any way, um, it is our privilege to do that. We have men and women who are available between the auditoriums. Uh, don't leave campus without prayer. If, if you would like someone to pray with you, that's what they're there for. It's their privilege to do that. They would love to do it. Thanks again for being here. I hope you have a great 4th of July. Thank you to all of those who serve. We are very grateful. Um, we'll see you next time.